Hello, and welcome to season two of Time for the Soul. My name is Sharon Kugler, and I'm the Yale University chaplain. And today, our guest is my dear friend Abdul Rahman Malik, uh, AR for short, by people who know and love him well. Uh, we first met when he was a World Fellow here at Yale University. He's a journalist, he's an educator, he's a beloved husband, dad, son, brother, and friend. Um, but he's also an educator. He teaches two, I think I have it right, two courses at the Yale Divinity School on Islam that um, have been incredibly popular. And as I was thinking about this season two of Time for the Soul, uh, I really thought of who approaches their work as something that is a bit of a call, a vocation, and yet not always seen in the conventional way. AR came to mind. And the phrase that I had in AR uh, I'll ask you to humor me a little bit. Really, you have a charism of gathering people. And one of my favorite descriptions is you are a cultural organizer. And I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about your work and the call that you feel, or at least you certainly exude to those of us whose path crosses yours. Well, I really appreciate uh, that introduction and, and those those words. And if anything, they're 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 a testament to um, what I think is my origin story. You know, where where I think this desire to gather folks came from, and it really came from my home. Um, you know, my parents came to Canada in the early 1970s. My dad came in 1971. My mother joined him in 1973, and I was born in 1975. You know, the mid-70s, as you'll know, uh, Sharon, were a heady time, politically tumultuous, not only here in, in the Americas, but but globally. We were in the middle of a terrible recession, and, and, and you know, things actually looked pretty bleak. And I think for my parents, you know, giving birth to a child in the middle of this and also sort of dealing with migration and establishing a new home and and particularly for my mother who was really in 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 kind of a old world language a burn the boat immigrant mm -hmm. she never imagined a return i think my dad toyed with it for a little while but i think my mother knew the moment that they had left pakistan and the moment that they had had children in canada they weren't going anywhere and so i think from the very beginning there was this real desire, particularly from my mom, to establish community, and more than that, to make her home a place where community could be established and could be welcome. And so my earliest memories are of a house always filled with people, with conversation. I was never the child who was left out of that. I was always brought into the conversation. You know, my mother would say, you know, make sure that Abdi is, is with you. Um, when you're talking about, you know, politics and, and the news and the house was filled with journals from all over the world. My parents were really politically, you know, clued in to what was happening in far-flung places. And it was the time of the Iranian Revolution and the civil war in Lebanon and, and the rise of the Palestinian uh, struggle for nationhood. And Boy, I experienced all that in my home, not only through my parents, but through all the conversations that were happening. And so for me, home was about not only gathering 
and not only hospitality, but purposeful, meaningful talk. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just shooting the breeze. It was serious stuff. And so I grew up with all this serious conversation. And I could see joy in that over meals, over chai, over, uh, you know, over over friendship. And and I think those were the seeds for me. That's that's the seeds of the person that I I became. And I think part of the secret for me as I've as I've grown up, and especially this past year contending with my my mother's passing, is thinking about my name, which I've thought a lot about through my life. And you know, Abdurrahman means servant of the merciful. And it was a name that was chosen by my parents uh, to the exclusion of any consultation with grandparents, which is usually the custom in our Punjabi Pakistani tradition. And I think for my parents, it was really, boy, this is this is a this is a crazy heady time of conflict and difficulty. And we want our kids, particularly our firstborn, to be connected to the idea of God's mercy. And so it was sort of written into my name. So in a way, if I can't run away from it, you know, and, and if I, I feel like I feel like it keeps me accountable. If I behave contrary to my name, then, then I'm, I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm giving up the covenant that my parents took up with God, really, when they named me so. So it's it's both a it's both a burden and a promise. I feel. I love the the notion of the promise. You can't get away from it. And what does it mean to live into it? One of the things that I have so loved and appreciated about you and your work uh, and the time that we've known each other here at Yale is that you help people open up to their own stories. And you're naturally born storyteller, and I've had the good fortune to meet your father um, and could see that and the joy he takes from just being around people. I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, that particular gift you have of getting at the story, of helping people tell their story around difficult issues, some real pain. I know in your travels, you've gone into places where people have been in great pain. They have, and, and you know, I, I, I've thought a lot about story all my life. I think part of it was because we we grew up in a house of stories. You know, it was a house of books. Um, I think the greatest treasure uh, that my mom felt that she had gathered in her life was all these books, thousands and thousands of volumes and multiple rooms and boxes in the garage and the basement. And 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 uh, God help us if we try to get rid of any of them or to, or to sell any. You know, it just it wasn't it wasn't even on the cards. And I think part of that was that she was she was a lover of English literature and and, and grew up with that in, in in Pakistan and and loved reading stories. And I think what she and my father shared when they first got married was that this kind of reading to each other, and not only reading books together, but poetry. Poetry being this, the 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 the, the cultural language of the Punjab, you know. And my dad loving you know, the great poets of the Punjab and the great poets of the subcontinent. My mother really enjoying that and and back and forth. One thing that my mom loved was letters. Mm. She loved collections of letters and particularly letters by by kind of uh, great masters of Urdu literature or, or personalities within the freedom struggle for um, uh, that led to partition in 1947. 
And and she would often read to us letters that she liked. And I remember that now. It's funny that you've really triggered a kind of a, a memory because I'd forgotten about that. I'd forgotten about this her love for letters. And of course the letters were all stories. And so there's this idea of telling one story that 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 there was something intimate and important about it in terms of connecting, uh, connecting with it. And I think I I, I I gravitated to that really early. I was bookish. I enjoyed the reading. Our favorite activity growing up was going to the library. And you know, my mom would go do her groceries, and she'd drop us at 10 a.m. and pick us up at 4 a.m. and at 4 p.m. And 4 p.m. we'd be like, Mom, do we have to go already? Because we'd already worked ourselves through three or four books and had a pile ready to ready to go. So I think we loved stories. What I've come to learn is that the story is important, but even more important is the storyteller. And that's the human. That's the person. That's the, you know, people say stories change the world. I don't believe that anymore. Storytellers change the world. Who's telling the story? How they're telling it? What uh, authenticity, uh, honesty, transparency, vulnerability they're bringing to the act of telling the story is the story and so much more. There's no thousand and one nights without Shirazadi mm-hmm. telling the story night after night after night. It's in our tradition. And so I I think what a lot of my work over the last particularly 10 years has been about is how do we go to places where there has been trauma, violence, where people live across religious, cultural, economic, linguistic fault lines, and and how do they tell not only their own story in a way that is heard by those who may not have heard it before, but how do they tell new stories with others jointly? How do they weave stories together? And I think it's in that weaving that's the exciting part. How, when, when, when storytellers are telling stories well, how then do they take the threads and start to knot them together and make a, make a larger tapestry of, of stories? And it, it sounds, um, maybe it sounds trite. Uh, it certainly is, is hopeful, aspirational uh, in a time when uh, we need that, but actually, you know, sometimes feel terribly cynical. But I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've, I've, I've been there when the stories weave. And it's a remarkable thing to watch. It has nothing to do with us as facilitators. It has everything to do with the capacity of human beings to connect. And I think the work that you do and the chaplaincy does, it's all about connection, isn't it? How it do you, is. How do you find the, the common threads? Yeah. How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you weave them together into something that's nurturing, healing, and growing? Yeah, I think it's a, the, the image that came to mind when you were talking, and I, I certainly see it in my own work, is that notion of the fertile soil mm. that this act of telling one's story can allow for. Even if it's born out of a kind of trauma, there's something else that roots there. Mm. Um, I think it has to be gently uh, brought about, you know, and, I, uh, you know, an image that always comes to my mind is, is midwifery. Let's just bring this to life. And um, it. so, yes, I see that. What is that higher thing for you in your work? You speak about your name, and I think that's the, that's the starting point. What's the continual fuel? You know, it's, it's, it's a really good question. It's a pertinent question is a difficult question because I think, um, you know, you've, you've been through so many passages in your career, in your life. And I'm, 
I'm sure you can look back at the point that perhaps I am at now. You know, yes. I'm, I'm at the cusp of 50. I'm almost 48. Um, in that process where we've started losing our parents and that generation, and you feel in the pole position of the next generation. You're you're now entering into really ancestor preparation, as some of our indigenous friends and elders would tell us, right? We're preparing ourselves to become ancestors. And so these these questions about purpose are, are, are really forefront in my mind right now because I find it sometimes difficult to hold on to one thing and, and to hold on, especially to this question of, some people might say legacy, but you know, in our tradition, we call it a sadaka jariya, the, the, the charity that continues to give. What is it that when I die will be the charity that will continue to give? And you know, my, my, my mentor, Fuad Nahdi, who passed away in March 2020 at the beginning of COVID, of COVID, you know, in those last few years of his life, when I was here in New Haven, he was in London, and I'd visit him often and sit with him and, and, and his wife, Homera, who's also one of my teachers and, and advisors and guides. And, you know, they would really challenge me. And they would say, A.R., you are in your 40s now. Where are your people? And I said, what, is that? what do you mean? And he says, he says, we had folks like you. You know, you were at this table. You were practically living in our home. But that was part of what we wanted. We wanted to have relationship and friendship with you and people like you because you're the legacy. We have to be able to give. He says, who are you giving to? And that question stayed with me, and it still continues to stay with me because that's the, in some ways, I feel is the charity that continues to give. Who are the people that we mentor, build up, befriend, engage in relationship with? And so when I, when I, I guess when I think about it, I think about, what is my goal in, in, in my work? And I think one of those goals, one of those aspirations is that if, if through whatever effort that I'm able to make and you know, we ask God that it's sincere and, 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 and honest and, and, you know, comes from, uh, you know, a place of service, is that if we can help shape others to become a means by which mercy, compassion, and justice can be channeled to the earth and the people in it and the planet itself and these communities of birds and trees and, and grasses, then that is, for me, the high aspiration. You know, and, and in the Islamic tradition, we speak about, the Sufis in particular will speak about being the asbab, being a means, a lens, a vehicle that the divine chooses through which the divine attributes of mercy and compassion and justice flow. And so if, if, if we can help ourselves and others become the vessel through which those flow in a world that needs mercy, compassion, and justice, um, as, it, as it probably never has, then I think that's an aspiration. So if I try to give coherence to, to, to all of the uh, pots that are boiling, and not quite cooked, all those projects that are running and not quite come to fruition, I'm hoping that that's the coherent theme, you know, for to cultivate mercy, compassion, and justice as a practice. And, and wherever students or those we work with go, you know, they, they might, God forbid, end up at a hedge fund or at a consulting <laughs> job. If, if God blesses them, they, mm -hmm. they, they you know, they, they, they might work for a nonprofit or mm -hmm. they might become organizers. 
um, or if they have really high aspirations, they might become chaplains. <laughs> um, whatever they do, if they can see their lives as primarily being about being a vessel, about mercy, compassion, and justice, and being a way that that can flow through you and you connect with others through that, then I hope to think that the work has been of value. Oh, yes. And I have to say to our listeners, you're wearing a sweatshirt, a hoodie that says, God is woke. And you're, you are an embodiment of that gift of reminding people of what's possible for them. And I thank you for spending some time with me today and time thank you, for Cheryl. the soul. Thank you, Sharon. It's such an honor to, uh, to be with you. And, and we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna miss you a year from now. Oh, <laughs> we won't talk about that. <laughs> thank you, A.R. You're very welcome. Time for the Soul is produced by Ryan McAvoy, created by Sharon Kugler, Maytal Satiel, and Sean Mignon. Our music is by J.P. Durvin. This has been a production of the Yale Broadcast Studio.